Dr. Michael Osterholm returns the show. Among his many responsibilities, he's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the U of M. He has been involved in so many significant health issues, decade after decade after decade, working with uh, in a bipartisan way, whether at the state level, federal level, and internationally, and he's been a great guest to this show. And Mike is back with us on the John Schuster Coldwell Banker Hotline. Always a pleasure, sir. Hope you are well. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Let me jump in with this one. The World Health Organization has quietly shelved the second phase of its much-anticipated scientific investigation into the origins of COVID, the outlet Nature has learned. What do you know about this? And more importantly, Mike, how important is it to you right now for us to know with complete certainty how COVID did start in China? Well, first of all, this is not a surprise. Many of us uh, believe that this would be the ultimate outcome just because of the fact that uh, the Chinese are not going to open up and provide records that might address this issue and even the possibility they don't even have the records. Um, You know, I'm not here to defend what happened or didn't happen in China, but let me just paint some realism to this. Imagine the following scenario. A new virus emerges in the Caribbean, a deadly virus, and surely that's possible it could happen. Where do you think we might likely pick it up first? Probably in Atlanta, because that is the air transportation hub of the Caribbean and it's where the lab capacity exists that we would find it. Well, you and I both know that if a virus first showed up in Atlanta, there would be an absolute conclusion made that it came from the CDC and that, therefore, the Chinese and the Russians want us to open up all the CDC and any number of other facilities so that they could basically look, see whatever they wanted to do. We would never let the Chinese and Russians do that. And so I'm, I'm not defending the Chinese. I'm only saying I think the reality is we all long assumed that we were going to get some kind of a review or summary that would answer the question. And I've always doubted that that would likely be the case. The second thing is, I think, again, just we can conclude, and this is an important conclusion, there are no data which support that this virus was a man-made virus. That has been part of the intrigue about the fact, you know, what happened in China. Now, the question is, did this virus, which likely came from a bat, possibly through another secondary animal species in the Guangdong markets, uh, and could have happened like that and spread. Or it could have been a virus that was captured in the bats or the animals, brought to the lab, and then and in a lab accident, somebody got infected, not knowing that they even had this virus or in the community, and that started the, the pandemic. Either one of those are possible scenarios. We'll just never know. But I think the message here, which is really, really important, is that this could happen again if, in fact, it were both either a man-made lab accident or it was an accidental release from an animal to a human, and we've got to be prepared for it, and we're not. You know, if if anything, Chad, and you and I have talked about this multiple times on this show, I think we're less prepared as a country, as a world, for the next pandemic than we were before we started this one. I, I know you feel that way. That's why I brought this up at the start. So, if China continues to act like China has, and, and I'm with you, I think most of us have been really skeptical of any transparency from China. 
How much more vulnerable does it make us? If, if let's say this was Australia or another country and they had turned over all the information and allowed the, uh, the team, the smartest people to come in. And uh-huh. so we, we had a 100% conclusion. Would that put us in a notably better position for us to be in better shape for the next COVID-esque-like illness that will strike across the globe? You know, I wish I could say that, and you know, and, and I surely could say it and make people feel good, but it wouldn't be true. Think about the following. Another real-life experience, one of our neighbors, Mexico, 2009, H1N1, a new strain of the flu virus emerged in a pig population in Mexico. And within days, it started to spread in people. Within one month, within one month of having discovered this in Mexico, it turns out it was in 142 countries around the world, within a month. This is what some of us have been trying to say for a long time. Once a viral respiratory pathogen, a virus transmitted via air, easily transmitted, once that starts going, it is like trying to stop a tsunami with a few sandbags. And so we can't stop it. What we can do is be better prepared to try to limit its impact, you know, to try to be able to save as many lives as possible, to keep society operating as well as it can, not to have an economic downturn, not to overrun our hospitals, et cetera. But we have to accept the fact that this is why these microbes are so dangerous, because we can't stop them, and we think we can. And Mexico was a good example. There was complete transparency in Mexico. Nobody hit anything. But it moved so fast that by the time we could even get there, I mean, it, you know, it's like a 10-story building. And instead of burning down in a couple hours, it burns down in 22 minutes. You know, it's going to be done before the fire company even gets there. The, the state of COVID in Minnesota right now is? You know, it's in this kind of steady state situation. You know, if you had asked me this a year ago, and I would say with all humility, I would have answered it probably wrong. If nothing else, I surely would have at least acknowledged that we are where we're at now. We are now going into our 12th month, one year, of having 420 to 520 deaths a day. And we're there today. We're at 465 deaths again today for the country. And it's just this, what I call high plains plateau of cases. We're not seeing these big mountain peaks, these big surges of Alpha and Delta and Omicron. But we're not seeing the low valleys either, you know, where it seems like we're over it. It just keeps hammering home and hammering home. And I can just tell you, in the last three weeks, I've had more friends, colleagues, and, and others I know here in Minnesota who have become infected. Now, the good news is, with the increased number of infections, though, we still are not seeing a high, high number of people becoming seriously ill and dying. But we see that relative level of that happening, just like I said with the national data. And again, just to put perspective to this, you know, 450 to 480 people a day are dying from COVID. How does that compare to anything? Well, it's a lot better than 3,500 people a day dying like we saw during these big peaks. Mm-hmm. But the number one cause of cancer deaths in this country every day is lung cancer, about 350 deaths a day. That's the number one cause of cancer in deaths. So here we are, we're at 100 and some more deaths a day than that. You know, we're talking about 450 deaths a day, 3,000 plus deaths a, a week. 
And so that's the challenge we have is as much as we're all over the virus and for many people who get infected, it will be an inconvenience. It will be five or six days feeling like they've been hit by a truck and they'll get better. And but some of those will get long COVID. And again, we keep seeing this persistent number of people who continue to die. Okay, speaking of dying, these texts are coming in. And there are people who will report on this every single day. We had an individual playing soccer the other day, 25 years old, playing Parish. I have no idea if that was tied to COVID. I know some people automatically, no no matter what, will say, yep, it's the vaccine. The young people continue to die because of the vaccine. Do you think in the next couple months we will see – definitive data, not subjective in any way, that will show the amount of people who have died because of the vaccine to provide even more clarity to folks who think no one is dying from it, others who think way too many people are dying. So we can try to advance this conversation from either – I don't believe any of it, or I believe all of it. Well, you know, Chad, uh, this is one of those situations we don't need any more data. The data are very compelling already that the kind of illnesses we see associated with the vaccine uh, in terms of the myocarditis basically are not causing deaths. They are causing some people to become mildly ill to moderately ill for a short period of time. That's true. But when we compare how many of those individuals actually are seriously ill or dying compared to what happens if you get the vaccine, it's not any comparison at all. You know, it's like that story, you know, one person who's trapped in a car because their seatbelt in an accident jams and they can't get them out and they die because of that. Everybody says, oh, we got to stop using seatbelts. But then when you look at how many lives are saved because of seatbelts, you say, wow, we got to all be wearing our seatbelts. Well, the same is true with this vaccine. And the data are already there. It's, it's one of those issues where every sudden event that results in death or some kind of cardiac issue, people are now saying is due to, to the COVID vaccine without any information. And that story gets repeated enough times, people start to believe it. And, you know, I, for example, one of my dear colleagues, Celine Gounder's husband, Grant Wall, yep. you know, basically died acutely. It was very clear what he had, an aortic aneurysm, he had nothing to do with the vaccine. You can't know the kind of emails and communications that Celine received afterwards about him and his death and yep. COVID. Right. It was it was it was it made you so angry, your blood would boil. Vicious. And so sure. that's, that's a reality of the world today. We can't change that. But I can tell you right now, ask me what I would recommend to my loved ones. Ask me what I recommend to the people who matter most to me. Get the vaccine. Last thing, sir. The yeah. uh, public health emergency for COVID from the federal government ends, unless there's a, a change, May 11th this year. Do you agree with that? And how will life change without it? Well, you know, actually, uh, this is one of those things that uh, deserves an entire show, okay? Because there actually are five different emergency declarations that were made in the pandemic in the United States, from what the FDA could do to authorize emergency use of vaccines and drugs to what uh, the PrEP Act, which is another issue. There's all these different things. So the one that is basically going to sunset uh, in May 
is the public health emergency, which the biggest issue that we had with that was that that under the public health emergency basically meant that you couldn't be kicked off the Medicare Medicaid rolls. Okay, so, you know, they're supposed to be constantly going through making sure that people who once were eligible for that now may be making too much money to be eligible. And so they had to be removed. Well, you know, that's surely is what people have been focused on. The ironic part about that, there was actually in the ominous bill that was passed in December. They already disconnected that. They already made it so that you have to go back through and start looking for that. So even with that declaration, you know, ending. It won't have a material difference on who is or isn't on Medicare, Medicaid, um, in the sense that's already been taken care of. In terms of other things about testing, uh, vaccines, all of that, there are some potential implications for that. But by far the biggest implication is Congress has just not authorized any additional spending. So we're going to run out of subsidized vaccines, drugs, testing, and so forth. That has much more to do about is there going to be any additional authorization. So. I don't have any challenges with the sunset of this one. I would be very concerned, for example, if the FDA sunset their emergency use authorization issues, that would mean that certain vaccines or drugs couldn't be available because they can't be used unless it's an emergency. So to me, it's, 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 it's not an issue. Thank you, sir. Good stuff as always. Thank Enjoy you. the day. We'll talk Thank again. You. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Michael Ostrom here, 22 past one on WCCO.